right, uh, good morning. My name is Gentry. If we've never met yet, and I, like Josh, I'm on our pastoral team here at Ethos Church HV. And for the last several weeks, like er earlier this fall, we started this teaching series titled Come and Stay. And the whole like just heart of the church or of this series is in a culture that is moving at a frantically fast pace that is super come and go. And especially in this holiday season where it feels like there is like next thing after next thing after next thing to do or to get to or to be a part of. We want to be a church body that really embodies Jesus's invitation to come and stay, to swim across, like, against those currents of culture that are moving frantically fast, and to just be still in the presence of God. It's in, we think that this is really essential in our formation as the people of God, as we grow in living life with God, from God, and for God in that order. And those phrases come and stay and with God, from God, for God, it's really just our language put to Jesus' own words in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That word abide can also just be translated as remain, remain in me. Jesus, he's extending this invitation to come to him to sit, to slow down, to be still, to be quiet, and to just hang out for a little bit. And so that's what we're trying to do with this series. And then, so John 15 is one of our anchor texts along with Galatians 5, where the Apostle Paul, he gives uh, a list of the fruit of the Spirit is, the evidence of the Spirit in someone's life is, and then this list of nine different like descriptors of the fruit of the Spirit. And so we've been slowly walking through one by one these fruit. And this week, we're going to zoom in on the fruit of gentleness is where we're at. So Let's talk about gentleness and where we see it within the character of God, because that's kind of our working formula for this teaching series. If it's fruit of the Spirit in someone's life, then it must be true of the Spirit of God before it is formed in our own lives. And so we've been kind of just looking at where does this show up in the character of God in Scripture. But first, a quick little story. It was on their first night in the land of Narnia that the Pavinci children, they were enjoying a cozy fireside meal with some new friends, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who were in fact actually talking beavers. Uh, animals that talked were not uncommon in this magical land of Narnia. In fact, normally humans didn't live in Narnia, just talking animals and fairy tale creatures. But as these children, these four children were sitting around the table, enjoying a conversation and a meal with the beavers, the, ch the conversation quickly turned to the subject of a person named Aslan, the king of Narnia. And desiring to learn more about this king who will rescue the land of Narnia from the perpetual winter and the oppressive rule of the White Witch, Lucy, the younger sister, asks, is he a man? 
which is a totally valid question considering they've not met any other people since they've arrived in Narnia, right? Just talking animals and fairy tale creatures. To which Mr. Beaver informs her that Aslan is not in fact a man, but he is the king of the wood. He is the son of the emperor beyond the sea, the king of beasts. Aslan is a lion. And shocked by this answer, Lucy's sister Susan, she asks that is she asks if he is safe. And that she's quite nervous about meeting a lion, which the beavers validate as a completely valid and rational response to meeting Aslan. And yeah, Mr. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And Lucy, she chimes in to confirm what is being said about this king, and she asks, then he isn't safe. There's this question that lingers in the children's mind that night as they enjoy that dinner table conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, as they learn more about this Aslan, the king of the beasts, who in C.S. Lewis's story is this figure representative of Christ. In Matthew 11, in another great book, a better book, in Matthew 11, Jesus himself, he makes this claim. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It was noted by uh, Charles Spurgeon that in the whole of the New Testament, there's only one passage in which the heart of Jesus is distinctly and directly mentioned, and it is this very passage. So in the whole of the New Testament, the only time that Jesus or anyone else for that matter explicitly states what the heart of God is like is here. Gentle and lowly or meek and humble. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for most of my life, uh, I was probably quicker to ascribe attributes of holiness, of power and might to God than I was gentle and lowly or meek and humble. And if scripture is to be believed, which I believe it is, God is all of those things completely. He is almighty. He is all powerful. He is uh, completely holy. And C.S. Lewis's, I believe his imagining of Christ or of God as a lion is quite fitting. Can you think of a more regal, majestic, beautiful, and terrifying creature than a lion. But Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm sorry. Gentle and lowly? These are the words in all of the New Testament that describe the Old Testament God in the flesh of Jesus. I mean, isn't the Old Testament God angry and violent? Didn't people die in his presence just because they didn't follow the proper rules? 
I mean, does anyone remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who they burned the wrong incense in the tabernacle in the presence of God and were burnt to a crisp? Or Uzzah, who in an unthinking moment while transporting the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy and sacred item in Israel, it was about to topple out of a cart, so he stuck his hand out to keep it from falling on the ground, and he is struck dead for touching the ark. Gentle is one of the words that Paul uses to describe the same spirit that blinded him on the road to Damascus, that shook his prison cell open in Philippi with a supernatural earthquake, and that struck down two early church members for lying to the apostle Peter. How can the same God say, no one can see my face and live to Moses and also say, I am gentle and lowly? And so to explore this seeming contradiction this morning, I want us to spend some time with this guy named Isaiah. You guys, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can open up to Isaiah chapter six. That's where our primary text is gonna be. This morning. But and as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And in biblical terms, a prophet is not a fortune teller or a diviner. That's what we tend to think when we hear the word prophet. But in, in the Bible, a prophet really simply is someone who is the mouthpiece of God someone who hears from God and is charged to share that message with people. And there's this debate as to whether, so Isaiah is a prophet, that's not up for debate, but there's a debate as to whether Isaiah was a priest or not. But regardless of if Isaiah was a priest or not, he would have been deeply familiar with the religious system and the temple in Jerusalem. He would have been deeply familiar with the Levitical law, and much of that law was centered around these ideas of holiness and cleanliness. Right before the book of Leviticus, where we get a lot of this law, named after, you know, Levitical law, Leviticus, it's the same thing. Right before the book of Leviticus, and at the end of Exodus, Moses builds the tabernacle, and the glory of God fills the tabernacle And it's so holy and powerful in that place that no one can enter safely into the tabernacle. And that's where we get the law of Leviticus. Much of it instruction for ritual cleanliness that affords the people of God the ability to live near to the presence of God and to worship him freely in the tabernacle where his presence dwells. You see, God is Holy, He is set apart, and though we are made in his image, he is utterly and essentially different than we are. And because of that, sin and uncleanliness cannot safely enter into his presence. To go into the holy of holies, the center of the tabernacle or the temple where the presence of God was supposed to dwell most thickly into the temple without being ritually clean, would be like a firefighter entering into a burning building without any protective gear. 
except that building is actually just the sun in proximity to the sheer power without a proper covering or protection would spell certain death. And priest or not, Isaiah would have had this understanding that the presence of God is holy and not to be trifled with. It's actually such pure, concentrated goodness and holiness that it could kill me if I got too close to it without taking the proper measurements as spelled out in the law. And I say all that to say that that an understanding of that is going to be essential as we explore an encounter that Isaiah had with the presence of the Lord. So if you've got Isaiah 6, I'm going to read the first four verses here. But in Isaiah 6, he, he recounts an encounter that he had with the presence of the Lord himself. And he says, It was in the year of the, that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And their voices, they shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. So Isaiah somehow has just stumbled into, on accident, the throne room of God. And he sees God sitting on his throne, and God is so massive that the temple can only hold God's feet and the train of his robe, which fill it completely. And that's all Isaiah can really see of God, is the train of his robe and his feet. And then he sees this host of these crazy angelic beings named seraphim, which literally means burning ones. They have this appearance like fire. And they have six wings, two of which they use to cover their face because they can't even look on the brilliance of God himself. And they're singing together, these angelic beings, these seraphim, this song of worship to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And their voices as they sing together are so loud that it is shaking the temple, this massive building, to its foundations. And on top of all of that, the whole place is filled with smoke. This is an utterly terrifying scene that Isaiah has just stumbled into. It's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and her crew, they enter into the wizard's chamber for the first time, and they're met with like a kind of similarly scary scene, right? There's the booming voice of Oz telling them to come forward. There's these thundering pyrotechnics and multicolored smoke. Except Isaiah's version was probably a thousand times more terrifying than that old film. As he finds himself not in the presence of some phony wizard, but in the throne room of heaven and in the very presence of the God who created everything, the fountain of life itself. 
And here in the throne room, unlike in Oz, there is no man behind the curtain. It's just God. But similar to Dorothy and her crew, Isaiah, he finds himself terrified and shaking in his boots as he is now in the throne room of Yahweh. And in verse five, he says, Then I said, It is all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah, he immediately recognizes upon stumbling in here two things. First, the vast disparity between himself and God, because God's holiness and power are so different than Isaiah's own uncleanliness and frailty. And because of that, Isaiah recognizes he's in trouble. He's like, whoa, whoa, like I'm not supposed to be here. I'm sorry, how do I, where's the exit? Okay, guess there's not one. This is it, this is how I die. <laughs> but instead of finding the end that he expects, something different happens. The strangest thing, instead of meeting his end that he anticipates, one of the seraphim that was attending God, it leaves its station, presumably like on God's command, it leaves what it was doing and it flies down to the altar here in the temple. And it grabs a pair of tongs and it brings out of the altar where sacrifices are made a coal from the fire there. And it brings this coal over to Isaiah and it presses it up to his lips. The very place that Isaiah proclaimed was unclean. And it says to him, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In a moment, what Isaiah has known to be true about God is suddenly changed. Where Isaiah is expecting to encounter the full effects of the holiness of God through his power and his holiness, he instead, in fact, he encounters the holiness of God through his gentleness. Isaiah, he experienced this reality that God's essence is terrifyingly holy, but his nature and his heart are shockingly gentle. And this is the story of Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet whose message was one of judgment against Israel. That rebellion against God, that it comes at a cost. But Isaiah was also a prophet of great hope. Isaiah is like the great prophet of Advent. Most of those scriptures we just read for Advent were from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, the, the scripture that Toby read us happened, it's this prophecy of Jesus that happens in the next chapter after this encounter in chapter seven. And we get another prophecy about Jesus in chapter nine. 
And then again in chapter 11, and then on through the book of Isaiah, peppered in are these prophecies about hope of the coming Messiah. Prophecies about the Jesus, the one who, like the burning coal taken from the sacrificial altar and pressed to Isaiah's lips, would atone for the sins of the people and proclaim forgiveness. Remember Jesus' claim from earlier in Matthew 11, Dana Ortland writing about that, that Jesus claimed that he's gentle and lowly. Dana Ortland writes this. The meaning of the word lowly, it overlaps with that of gentle, together communicating a single reality about Jesus' heart, that he is accessible. For all his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we are able to approach the Father. Christ is like the coal who was sent by God to make himself accessible to us, to welcome us into his throne room without fear of being harmed, for he is gentle in heart. And so as the Pavinci children, they sat around that table with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, silence filling the air. They probably just heard the crackle of the fire and the silent wake of Lucy's question. Then he isn't safe. Safe, Mr. Beaver responds. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Later in that same book, the children, they, they end up meeting Aslan, and he is just as beautiful and terrifying and good as the children had heard. And towards the end of the book, there's this moment of great joy and celebration where Lucy, Susan, and Aslan, they all spend some time playing together like little kids do, rolling around in the grass and playing chase. And C.S. Lewis, he writes, whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never tell. Gentleness, it shouldn't be confused with softness or mushiness or cowardice. Jesus' declaration that he is gentle and lowly, it comes a paragraph after he pronounces woe and judgment on unrepentant cities in Israel. And sandwiched between that judgment and the statement, I am gentle and lowly, is an invitation. Come to me which this invitation, it implies repentance. And we see the same thing with Isaiah, if you, if you caught it. And it's after, actually after Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness, his uncleanliness before a holy God, that God is then able to clean, cleanse him of that sinfulness and to bring him in closely. God's essence is essence is terrifyingly holy, but his nature and his heart are shockingly gentle. 
so gentle that he would come to us in the form of a newborn baby, born in a stable, in a backwater town, to a teenage girl, so that he could preach repentance and draw people near to his father. But I, at this point, I've talked long enough. One of the things that we want to do with this series of come and stay is give you time to actually do just that. To not just listen to myself or Josh talk about the character of God, but to sit in the presence of God yourself and to hopefully experience the character of God for yourself. And so for the next 10 minutes, the invitation, we're going to be playing some soft music, and we're just going to invite you guys for the next 10 minutes to sit in the presence of the Lord and to meditate on this story from Isaiah, to place yourself like in Isaiah's shoes. You stumble into the throne room of a terrifyingly holy God who you find to be shockingly gentle. So that's, that's the invitation. Uh, after the next 10 minutes, I'll come up and I'll lead us into the next part of our time together. But feel free to make yourselves comfortable. Um, we've got space up here if you want to come up here. You can stand, whatever. But.